0: You're listening to the Post-Growth Australia Podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Welcome back to another pithy episode of PGAP, which is proudly brought to you by Sustainable Population Australia. In the midst of some spring cleaning, for it is spring in Australia after all, I stumbled across a folder of lyrics I wrote when I was 17, most of them are rubbish, of course. Uh, but there were some lyrics to one song that particularly caught my eye. Uh, these lyrics in question went, So you can't change your system without changing yourself. Now I'm exhausted by it all. Pretty acute observations from a teenager from a cosy Perth suburb who hadn't yet had a day of activism or system change in his entire life. And weirdly prophetic of where I am now 20 years later. After a couple of decades of being a wannabe advocate for, in this very order, student rights, disability rights, animal rights, sustainable population, town planning, systemic change, collapse prepping, DIO community building, collaborative gardening, post-growth systemic change, and extinction rebellion, It has been during lockdown I realise I feel like I've spent the last couple of decades running in circles, chasing my tail, left utterly tired for a world that has only become worse. (laughs) Anyway, I recall during a meditation retreat five years ago having a vision that activism without shifting consciousness is merely rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. More recently, I rewatched a YouTube clip of Alan Watts and his dulcet tones reminding me that the environmental movement has been doing but not really achieving, all because of the illusion of the sense of self that is separate from the world and all that comes with that the mind, ego, delusions of agency and choice. Okay, so I have something to admit here to all of my activist colleagues and listeners out there, which I'm a little bit embarrassed to do so. I'm going to come out of the closet now. (laughs) No, not in the way that you're thinking. That won't happen until at least uh, episode 12. I mean that I'm coming out of the closet of scientific rationality to admit that I'm actually a little bit spiritual, a little bit woo-woo, a little bit namaste if you catch my drift. It's not as bad as it sounds, I promise. My philosophies are roughly aligned with Buddhism, Taoism, non-duality, those kind of things. i don't even think these philosophies are even that out there anymore ultimately i've simply observed that everything in the universe is interconnected and vastly more infinite and complex than what our five senses clumsy labels we put on the infinite um via our use of and modality of language and the stupid hero victim stories we endlessly spin for ourselves might have us believe on a day-to-day basis Modern science is in rough congruence with many of, say, Buddhism ideas in regards to rediscovering the vast interconnectedness of the universe at all levels. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a supernova explosion that fused hydrogen together. And I wouldn't be thinking the thoughts as I say them if it were not at least in part due to the influence of my gut bacteria on playing with my emotions, so above, so below. For the past decade, I've flitted quite violently between the activist and spiritual worlds. These two worlds have seemed very different and mutually exclusive to me. the extent that I felt like I was one person in activist land and a totally different person in spirituality land. I felt like I don't quite belong in either realm. And although I've become very used to being an outsider and not belonging to any mold, I felt myself almost split in half down the middle. And the result has been quite discombobulating. It has been during the past couple of years that I felt the barriers separating the two start to um, tear away a little bit. Over in activist land, we have seen movements bridging the two together. Documentaries such as Esteem, My Octopus Teacher, and Living in a Time of Dying, explore the need for the acceptance, grief, self-work, and the recognition of the interconnectedness in the nature uh, that are now called on uh, in the environmental movement. Holistic activism is a new movement in Melbourne that explores how a shifting consciousness beyond language and fix the ideologies are necessary for activists to avoid repeating the same patterns that have got us into the same mess that has led us to this predicament in the first place. Some of the interviews on PGAP have explored this in part, the spiritual shift necessary to realign ourselves with the rest of the natural world to which we share this planet. While the activists are finally exploring their own inner landscapes, the COVID pandemic has seen another phenomena, that of people in the spiritual community becoming a lot more politically engaged as the government response to COVID threatens freedom and expression. In many ways, I've seen some in the spiritual movement now face the same challenges as activists, as differences of opinion, especially in social media, cause friction and division. So, What to do? What not to do? That is a question. In this episode, I interview Darpan, a former political activist and rock musician turned spiritual practitioner based in the Northern Rivers. For the past decade, I've been attending weekend retreats that he organised that include meditation, music and catharsis. I've even shared some of my own music at these retreats. Every time I go, Darpan has shared his insights into the state of the world that has filled me with empowerment, trust and relief. Uh, I'm still not sure to what extent I totally resonate or agree with everything that he has or ever will say, but it feels like a salve to the soul after weeks of reading despairing environmental reports (laughs) for my work and for that I'll forever be grateful to Darpan. For most of PGAP listeners, some, if not all, of DARPAN's views will sound radical and unorthodox. This is okay. Just as we sound radical and insane to mainstream society when we promote post-growth societies, so do we need to sit with possible discomfort around views that may appear left field to us in return. As I'm on the fence between two worlds, I myself fear between embracing and distancing myself from some of these ideas. Following the interview, I will return to share my own views for a few minutes on some of the existential challenges facing activists and the environmental movement. Likewise, I will share my own perspective on the activism that has emerged recently from COVID and the Australian response to this. For those who are listening for the first time because of the Darpan connection, my views may or may not in turn be confronting. If so, good, let it be. Anyway, no one really has the answer, and the real truth lies not in the words but in the gaps between them, ultimately. Just a heads up, during the interview with Darpan, I accidentally refer to COVID-19 as a superbug instead of a zoonotic disease, and I'd like to take the opportunity to correct myself in advance, even though both are risks due to intensive animal agriculture. Anyway, that's another example of the truth lying between the words and not the words themselves. To start off, I'd like to play an absolutely gorgeous ballad from the immensely talented local musician Belinda Wickens entitled, Here She Comes. Welcome back to post growth Australia podcast, where better is indeed better than bigger about a month ago, I spoke to Derek Jensen um, and very famous writer based in the USA, and we talked about the necessity for spirituality and consciousness, and I wanted to expand on that a little bit, so I thought who best to invite on our show rather than Darpan, who I've known for, I think we're coming up to our 10th anniversary now. Mm. How are you, Darpan?
1: Yeah, really, really well, Michael. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show.
0: And for those, and I think um, many people listening to this would perhaps not agree, come across a, a name Darpan yet? They might have, I don't know. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? And people would be probably a bit curious as to how you acquired the name Darpan. I was
1: born in Holland uh, and I was born Henricus Johannes Fischedeik, which is a bit of a tongue twister, but um, that's the name I was born with. And uh, my parents migrated to Australia when I was about four years old. So I actually grew up in Australia, uh, in the River Murray region of South Australia. And so I went to university at Flinders University when I was about just turned 17. At that point, the world really opened up for me in in the sense that I was able to get a lot more influence of culturally and politically and on so many other levels. And then uh, fell in love with an actress and uh, spent the next 12 years just doing rep theatre mainly in Melbourne, at the Melbourne Theatre Company, the Pram Factory. And from there I moved to Sydney, got involved in music, like I was working a lot with rock and roll. And um, at the same time, of course, I was always very interested in uh, in my spiritual pathway and um, and spent many years uh, in the ashram of, of Osho who some of you may have heard is uh, kind of a radical mystic, an enlightened mystic who was teaching in India at the time. And I've had a lot of experience myself uh, working with shamans and teachers uh, in, throughout Peru, uh, well, all throughout South America, actually. And that's always been an ongoing interest of mine, uh, as well as the study of meditation. I guess you could say, if, I, if you would have put me in a little, in a little box that I'm a Taoist. I I really love the Tao, the way of the Tao. And I'm also very interested and very um, influenced by the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. And so it has resulted in me in the last 20 years teaching, uh, meditation, sound healing, working with groups for transformation of consciousness in various modalities and, and various pathways. And I guess my years with Osho, as well as my study with psychedelics and my study with music and theater, has come together in one umbrella in a kind of a unique transmission that happens with, that I do with groups of people and have done for the last 25 years. And that's been a great pleasure and a great joy in my life to be able to be in service in this way. So that's briefly is my kind of a background. But where I got my name, Darpang, was was from Osho. Osho uh, gave me that name, and uh, at, at first, when I got that name, I, I thought, "Wow, what a strange name, Darpan!" You know, but I was kind of relieved not to be called Henricus anymore for a while. I was called Vimal Darpan. Vimal meaning pure, and Darpan translates in Sanskrit as as mirror, so pure mirror. And yeah, I guess I've been called Darpan now since 1987. So, it's it's really when I get called Hank, which was the shortening for Henricus uh or henrique's it feels kind of strange I, it doesn't feel doesn't feel like it belongs to me at all anymore
0: well uh i personally find darpan a lot easier to pronounce so for for that alone i'll forever be grateful to Osho. <laughs> Um speaking of non-dualism i recall the verse, first video i watched of alan watts he discussed being involved in environmental a convention where a lot of people were trying to be doing things like trying to save the environment by by doing actions and he observed that with all that doing they weren't actually moving the goalposts. and he suggested the proposition of not doing which um, is a difficult pill to swallow for many activists so you know as on a podcast we've been touching on the need to shift our mindset and relationship in the world if we're going to effectively change society, in our case, a post-growth world with a steady state economy. (laughs) And I'm sure you've probably got a few thoughts on the doing, not doing (laughs) dichotomy and and where that fits in with activism.
1: Well, yes. When I was a young man, I was a very, very politically active man. I was right up there in all of the social dissent, the student... Uh, demonstrations that were happening a lot in the post or while Vietnam War was still going and got very, very involved and committed in an activist sort of sense. And after many years of, of, you know, demonstrating and banging my head against the wall of the system, basically, all I really got out of was a big headache and uh, yes there were incremental changes we did stop the war in vietnam uh, apartheid did stop and i've got a list of about five convictions from that time and basically i think what was happening for me at that time in retrospect although i would never have admitted it at the time was that i was an angry young man getting my shit off against the system that was actually really me railing against my father and that's not to say that's a bad thing it's a very good thing because it was being channeled in a positive, creative, activist way for the betterment of what I perceived to be the human condition. However, once I started, um, came across meditation and I realized that it was so far more uh, powerful and more elegant to turn inwards and tweak the internal software of my own being and hence change my perception of the world, I realized that you know it was so much more powerful to work within and, and I discovered meditation then and started to explore those pathways, as opposed to the the doing aspect of going out in the world and trying to change it by, you know, manipulating the nuts and bolts of the system. In which, as I said, you do get incremental changes, but no real powerful transformative lasting change. It just brings about the same pattern of same old, same old. By the time I met Osho, he was really about this thing of not doing, of choiceless awareness, He was saying that, like, basically, we don't really have choice. We think we have choice, but we're only choosing within the realms and parameters of our conditioned responses that we've been taught since we were children. And who am I anyway, the I that is making the choice, other than a collection of prejudices, ideas, beliefs, concepts that I've accumulated along the way that I happen to identify with and call myself? And so at first, this was quite a, an interesting tautology, this idea of not doing as being a powerful way of acting, of being. In my very active mode, it seemed like a cop-out, like a spiritual cop-out. But when I was spent time with Osho and just settled more and more into his vision of things, and I was watching him as he worked with us, And he would deliver discourses for two hours every morning and every evening without fail, day after day after day after day. And what I saw there was a man who, once he was presented with a question or the sutra that he would comment upon on the day and give a discourse upon, there would just be silence. And you could see that he would just like there'd be a nobody. It was almost like there was a nobody there. There was a nothingness. And then out of that nothingness, would just come this incredible prose and amazingly takes it to the greatest heights of philosophical endeavor and, and reach to the most incredible places. You could feel that this was coming from a place not as a pundit, not as a commentator, not as someone who is doing a critique, but he was actually embodying whatever it was that he was talking about so when he was talking about buddha you felt you were in the presence of the buddha but the moment he would stop he'd just switch off the mind would just not be there and yet it would be there whenever he needed it and so i think that when you take the uh, position that this body mind this emotion this intellect is merely a vehicle uh for the expression of pure consciousness then there is no need to or we can stop identifying with those individual bodies whether it be the physical the etheric the emotional intellectual spiritual bodies and just use them as a as a vehicle but our trap is when we start identifying with each of those bodies any one of those bodies as being who we are oh i am this i like this i don't like that i i but the point of non-doing is a point of stepping back from the I and coming to a place of what I call a witness state. And there is always that quiet, still voice within, in each and every one of us, that is often drowned out by the din of the mind and the din of everyday doings, uh, that is always there, silently witnessing, like a mirror. Just like a mirror witnesses whatever it comes in front of it. It doesn't say, oh, you're beautiful, you're ugly, or I like this or I like that. It doesn't make any judgment. It just simply reflects This is the state of the witness. This is why I love my name and why it's afforded me such deep insight, because it is actually a a beautiful metaphor for our deep, true nature, which is formless, which just reflects, which is nothing in itself, and yet it is all things. It is immanent, and yet it is also a point of attention within me as I speak to you. And I love Alan Watts. He's a beautiful man and also has inspired me over the years. He is a man who I feel. It was very much in resonance with the message that Osho was also delivering, which is simply get out of your own way. Realize that this artifice of this ego, this personality, which we identify with as ourselves, is simply a creation. It's something we have uh, artfully managed and created throughout the course of our life to such a degree that we think that we are it. But if you can understand the mirror aspect of the one that is always reflecting the personality, reflecting the ego, then ego doesn't become a dirty word, as it is in most spiritual kind of considerations, that it's the enemy, not at all. It's the identification with the personality that is the, that is the issue. And once we can snip the little thread that keeps us identified with the, with the ego or the personality, then we are free and i love the work of people like david bowie who gave us permission through his many changes of personalities in his art that he actually introduced into the collective hey an ego is just a creation it's just like a suit of clothes you can take them on and take them off and what's more you can change it if you wish to because it's not who you are it's simply a vehicle and as a vehicle you can create a vehicle that really serves whatever your message is but never confuse the message for the ego and so when osho or alan watts says the choiceless self or the not I or getting out of one's own way. I think that's what they're talking about. And I guess part of meditation is giving more and more space to that witness so that one can be unattached to one's expression and yet completely total in one's expression of that expression, if you understand what I mean. I think Carlos Castaneda put it really well once through the words of Don Juan where he said, the art of the magician is this, The art of the magician knows that it all means nothing and that the ego is just a construct and the personality doesn't really exist. And yet the magician acts as if it means everything. So there's this incredible paradox or tautology that happens of knowing that it all means nothing and yet acting as if it means absolutely everything.
0: Now, I've recently watched uh, a documentary called Esteem. I'll I'll put it in the notes of the um, podcast. But what it was effectively saying was that um, you cannot heal yourself by healing that around you and, by token, you can't heal (laughs) the external without doing the necessarily inner work. So if we're to change our relationship with the world from one of, say, anthropocentrism to one that is Earth-centric or ecocentric, what mindsets or psychologies do we need to shift? Is indeed the destruction of the planet a reflection of our inner traumas and turmoils? And I I guess what you've been saying, if if I can kind of um, rephrase it a bit, that activism without a shift in consciousness is merely a rearranging of the deck chairs of the Titanic.
1: Indeed, that's so true. Very well put. The old adage that goes as above, so below, or as within, so without, it holds true. It's a perennial wisdom that is a beautiful key for understanding the, uh, the answer to your question. And uh, certainly I do believe that our internal ecology is reflected in our reality that we experience. And we have to remember that we do live in an objective world, but For as many people as there are on the planet, there are as many different realities occurring all at once. We just assume that we all live in the same reality, but it's not the case. What we live in is what's called a consensus reality in which we can approximate a certain amount of agreement about the external world and about our perceptions of the external world. But beyond that, it's pretty much subjective, what we experience of the world and the reality that we experience. I happen to believe that, We create our reality moment by moment, that we are in every moment manufacturing the experience of life as we perceive it on an individual level. And as such, I believe that all human beings are very, very powerful manifestors, magicians, if you like, and that we're waking up to that reality in our evolutionary push at this time. Many people, of course, would argue with me about, argue the point, say, yeah, but what about all these people who suffer and who are poor and who are, you know, disadvantaged? And I would say, well, yes, I agree. There are many people in the world like that, but that is a reflection of the fact that we are still masters, masters of limitation, certainly, but masters nonetheless, and that we must all find uh, the responsibility for creating our world the way that we wish to experience it and I think that's exactly what's happening although it may be difficult to to realize that right now but especially with the kind of chapters that we're moving through on the planet with the lockdown but I believe that these are pre- this is a prelude for the awakening of, of a large portion of humanity to the awareness that we create our reality moment by moment and that by attending to our internal ecology Is the best and most profound and most powerful way to contribute to a world unfolding in the way in the highest possible uh frequency that we can uh, are capable of of perceiving it you know the indigenous people in south america they believe that everything that happens on the earth is a reflection of the astral planes what they call the spirit world they say that whatever we experience on the physical realms happens first in the spiritual realms. Their analogy of that the spirit world is, is influencing greatly what happens in the physical plane can be absolutely applied to our moment by moment process. And rather than, as, as I mentioned earlier, tinkering with the nuts and bolts of the system and trying to change the world through political ways and through socially active ways, I think all of these ways are, are relevant. Don't get me wrong, I'm not putting them down, but they are limited. In their effect, a far more powerful way to work, I believe, is that to go inside and to activate or tweak the internal software of our own being, of our own consciousness, has a far more powerful way of affecting the world. Because there is an older age that holds true in a universal law principle, and that is that whatever you become fascinated by, you create more of. So if you become fascinated with how fucked up the world is, even if it's coming from a place of concern and do, trying to make it better, you contribute to it being more fucked up because in order to get into how fucked up it is, one needs to really get into that frequency. If you can work on the fact of how beautiful the world is and how uh, all-pervading the sense of connection that all beings and all things are, then one will tend to see The world in that way because whatever you become fascinated by you create more of if you if you change your perception the world has no option but to meet that change in your perception so i believe we're just on the cusp of of really understanding and really starting to get a handle on that particular dynamic which in then instead of giving our power away to all of these institutions suits doctors lawyers priests politicians who are set up as authority figures in our society we take that power back and become sovereign beings where we actually empower ourselves with the awareness that we are the sum total of the entire evolutionary process at this point. Now, it's been important to do that. We've needed mummy and daddy figures in our growth along the way, but we're just coming to a point now, it's like a point of puberty, where we can undo or reevaluate our relationship with the world, nature, the expression, society. All of that and reevaluate it to create a more healthy and more inclusive new relationship with our external environment by making a new relationship with ourselves within and re-empowering ourselves with trust and with authority. And because in fact that's where it's always belonged. It's just that we've been giving it away. And uh, and so I believe that this step uh, step into self-empowerment and sovereignty by that awareness of becoming responsible custodians of our own energy of like really um, embracing the responsibility of managing our power in a responsible and a creative way is really the issue of what's being awakened in human beings at this time and hence I I believe that by changing the internal ecology or the ergonomics of one's own being that that will naturally be reflected out into the world and if you remember that song by Michael Jackson do you know that song man in the mirror Yes. Yeah, where you're saying, look, you know, look at yourself, start with yourself, change yourself. This is a very good song, I think, for our times. Let's start with The Man in the Mirror.
0: So who would have thought Michael Jackson is the ultimate non-dualist? Here we go. It's
1: the real world that we live in.
0: Now, this is going to be, I think it's going to be a slightly controversial question uh, and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to Ask this, but it's based a, a around the, the what you feel and what you think you create. Now, I've been on someone who almost felt myself literally splitting into two, where I've been in an activist and spirituality world. Um, I suppose that's the ultimate duality, really. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the activists, I wish they'd do more self-work. Um, you know, the, the the spirituality world, I almost wish the net could be broadened a, a little bit and I've always felt a little bit uneasy whether spiritual bypassing was a was a natural phenomena. Uh, to give one example, for the last 10 years I've been quite vocal in saying, look, if animal agriculture and animal exploitation continues, we're going to end up with a superbug. And now that this has happened, one observation that I made is that some, not all, but some in the spirituality movement, have suddenly become a lot more um, active politically and i wonder if that is because as we enter this decade of consequence or well, that, that this is what i call the 2020s whether um the legacy that we've left in previous decades is actually starting to personally come to bite us in the ass so you know you know now it's like oh shit our, our realm of being is is contracted with masks and things like that Um, And I have noticed people in in the spiritual movement (laughs) kind of come out of the woodwork to become activists where a part of me wishes the net could have been broadened a a few years ago, only because I felt I could see like a... Um, where this was heading so I I do wonder whether ego finds its way into the movement and whether too much self-work does create an element of spiritual bypass um what is your insight on this and feel free to completely and utterly disagree with me that's
2: what this is for (laughs) well
1: no it's it's a very very uh it's a point that is really right on the pulse of what's happening right now and I agree with you that uh I've also had this intimation, as you did, uh, of being able to be in touch with the cycle and seeing what was coming. But in truth, things always happen at the right time. The fact that this is emerging now is because this is what's being presented to us now. As the Indigenous people say, it starts in the realm of consciousness and then comes down. However, having said that, especially in these times of this event, this world event that is you know grip the entire planet of which everybody is participating right now it behooves us also to be proactive in the world that we live in because on the one sense there is absolute consciousness and absolute awareness where we go okay all is consciousness and everything is a play of consciousness and everything is coming and going nothing is permanent it's all moving and shifting it's all in flux therefore allow it just to be in that flux whatever the cycle part of the cycle we're in however because we're in a human body because we're embedded into a 3D space-time reality this life education school called planet earth uh, and uh, and we are here as a as a as a student if you like in the school of life uh, to rub against duality to bump up against this and that up and down in and out right and wrong to polish the diamond of awareness of which, of course, we are, at essence, is who we are. We have a responsibility in the world also. We have a responsibility to our loved ones, to our family, to our community, to the uh, to the, to the emerging world as we perceive it. But I don't see that as necessarily the answer to that being that you have to jump on a political bandwagon, agree with Trump or disagree with Trump or in the relative, go into that sort of... Because I see that as a massive distraction. It's, a, it's an attempt to seduce you into uh into duality and what i feel is emerging right now and where our evolutionary push is is growing up into a sense of the expanded awareness of the connectedness of all things into the awareness of the unified field of consciousness of which we are a point of attention within that and yet we are the entire thing as well so if you take that to be as i do to be uh what is occurring right now, then how does that affect our, our, our behaviour within the relative? Well, as I said, I spent many years working in political activism. I really don't see that that's the same case because that's just what, what goes around comes around. It's, you know, revolutions come and go and the, and the revolutions that topple tyrants eventually become those very same tyrants that they toppled and so on and so forth. So that just says to me that when you are in a certain state of consciousness you will tend to repeat the same scenarios again and again and again. This is on an individual as well as on a collective level. So it's not about what we do or how we approach the relative. It's about where we're coming from. What state of consciousness are we in that we can transmit into the world? The the, the age-old tradition of ahimsa. Do what they, whatever you want as long as it causes no one any harm. And that means it takes a certain amount of responsibility. That means realizing that if you harm someone else, you're harming yourself. That if you do something, that it's going to reflect back on you because it's just, once that awareness is there, it has an inbuilt governing activity to your behavior. So, having said that, if one can have that experience of, of connectedness, then what I think how we behave in the world, and especially at this time during the lockdown, is that we take care of each other. We give and share love. We, uh, give, uh, we help each other. We're kind to each other. We support each other. Uh, that is a very different thing from activism. You know, I understand that there is necessary for some people to be activists out there, and I fully embrace those people as that being their dharma, their path, because all aspects on all fronts need to be addressed. However, I can only speak personally. From my own point of view, I tend to be the one that holds, uh, comes from that place of holding the intention strong, that this is all going somewhere good, that nature knows exactly what it's doing, that she's putting the icing on a cake that has taken billions of years to create, and that now comes the real juice. But in so doing, we have to confront the kind of limitations of duality. We have to bridge the polarity gap into a unified experience, into a seamless experience where spirit and matter become one, where they're no longer divided. They're not antagonistic and they're not antithetical. They are complementary. And this is the big shift that's happening for us because prior to, up until now it's always been about us and them, right and wrong, good and evil, black and white. It's always been about division, separation, delineation, extrapolation, and, and I'm not saying this is wrong. That is absolutely right within the framework of 3D space-time. But what is happening today? I feel, and we're in the beginning of this birthing, where all beings are validated just for the sake of being, and that we, you know, that we can live together in a way that we've always felt in our utopian heart is possible. But it hasn't been possible within the state of consciousness within we've been living and operating within the last couple of few thousand years. But I would go so far as to to discern the difference between political activism and between being proactive within our community within our beloved within our tribe within our family and that's what I'm talking about that proactivity of caring of sharing of loving of supporting i see the whole covid thing as being it is what is also and i don't argue the fact of whether it was manufactured or not i deal with what is and because it is then we work with it in such a way. But you work with it that is um, in accordance with our own integrity and with our own sense of values being intact. One thing that I think we have to be very careful about is not to simply acquiesce or give away our freedoms or our basic human rights out of fear or out of being singled out and made fun of or being ridiculed or being... But if you can honestly say, I am sovereign, I am a being, and I support life-affirming beautiful human values and that you know if if there is something needed that is a socially responsible action then I will certainly take it and so I think it's it's very important to empower ourselves with uh, authenticity that one must remain absolutely authentic and to be responsible and to leave the world a more beautiful place than when we came in other words to be creatively expressive to be caring, to be loving, to be supportive. All of these things, I think, are proactive ways of applying those spiritual principles in practice in 3D space time. So when we see beautiful uh, like humanity flowering in creativity in love and awareness, we can say pretty much with confidence something is going very right. So we have to come back to our own inner sense of knowing, claim our own sovereignty in, in evaluating these things.
0: Back in the days before COVID, I, I used to go to about um, two healing weekend retreats that you would do every year, and I also got to hear your insights. And I'm hearing these now um, and hearing your dulcet times <laughs> come across. I realise uh, what a panacea that was. And, uh, you know, I've, I've heard various versions of this, but it's nice to hear it again. Um, it, I, I imagine it's probably going to be a little bit of a challenge um to to the regular listener of this podcast but that's great let us um push beyond our comfort zones um Now, throughout the years I've known you and hearing your insight, I've been intrigued, inspired by your vision of a future of human society living in techno-tribes. I I apologise if I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, but if I'm not, can you unpack this a little and what might a day-to-day life appear in your vision of a future in a techno-tribe?
1: i'd love to but just before i do i'd like to address the the earlier point that you made before bringing that question in and i think it's really valid and something i'd just like to comment upon and that is although what i'm saying sounds kind of uh, idealistic i i see that um many many people are being called to apprehending that kind of a reality and looking at themselves if one good thing this lockdown has happened it's helped people to just spend time to just look inside more, where the whole world has stopped. And I think that's been a very, very good thing inadvertently and that people have had more time to just tune in and go, well, my life as it was, was it that fulfilling? Uh, was I really enjoying my job the way that I was doing it? They had time to self-reflect and pause, which is really the first time in our historical process when that's happened because usually it's business as usual, nine to five, get on with it, you know but i really really feel and my heart goes out to all those beings who are being negatively impacted by this and um you know if you're a single mother in london in a single you know room apartment with three kids it's going to be a very different reality and 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 it's 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 very tough for some people particularly in third world countries where people are literally depending upon their daily work in order to feed themselves this is going to be this has become a huge issue and for those people they don't really have time to think about the higher uh kind of principles about like you know the evolutionary push and the and what is being ingressed upon the planet right now they are in in danger of dying they they need to feed their children right now and so I, i i see that in that point Uh, It's very important to speak out and it's very important to bring this to the awareness of people because this is exactly a, a, a manifestation of that inequality that's been happening amongst human beings on this planet up until now. Almost we've been still in a sense of feudalism, you know. Maybe we don't have it in the West, but we just moved our sweatshops to the third world where they work for nothing to provide us with goods and services, and, and this has all got to be addressed. It's all got to be unraveled and reset. I think there's a certain amount of activism of waking up, of really taking responsibility and speaking out where one can and bringing awareness wherever one can because really nothing will change unless we change. We, the people, are the ones who can change things. And it's like bringing our awareness to the incredible suffering also that is on the planet is as much of an opener as opening up to the to the uh, realization that we are sovereign, sublime manifestors of our own reality. Uh, we, have a, we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters, uh, which was just the adjunct I'd like to say to the last question. And, and so we need to look at our fear. We need to look at our fear of death. We need to transcend and accept and embrace the process of death and rebirth. That in our, during the course of our lives, we have many little deaths not just our physical death, which is the final death. There are many, many deaths every time you lose a relationship, every time you, you uh, let go of an old pattern, every time you rise beyond some major challenge. These are all death and rebirth experiences, and I think that we're in a major one collectively right now. This is how consciousness shifts. It doesn't happen by thinking. It doesn't happen by feeling. It has to involve all of the bodies and one has to face the very real possibility of annihilation. Otherwise, it won't work. One has to really feel, oh, fuck, I'm going to die. And to go beyond that. This is what creates the shift in consciousness. Uh, and so I believe that that's what's happening on the planet today. We've all been put into our house. We've all had to go into looking what's going on, who am I, what's happening, the uncertainty of tomorrow, uh, standing at the abyss of the unknown, uh, just so much information, misinformation, disinformation, no one knows what's real or what's not real, no one knows what's true or what's not true. And actually, even though this is quite a an uncertain and sort of like a you know insecure situation, it is actually prime conditions for the transformation of consciousness. Things just don't shift when things are hunky-dory and well-known and or well-ordered. It does happen when things are unknown and uncertain. So we are have ideal conditions to affect the shift in consciousness. Now, a new state of consciousness will will manifest a completely new way of being. And I think that in that new world, my vision of it, and only insofar as I can see it, and this is just something I've played around with in my imagination, is um, a world of autonomy, of sovereignty, of self empowerment, so that we could, for example, instead of living in large cities where we're alienated, where we barely know our neighbour, we might know their name to say hello, good morning, but that's it. Suddenly, we can, if we created back, came back into a neo-tribal situation, you know, like that in the tribes of old, in the indigenous tribes, there was very rarely a thing called mental illness or alienation or or mental sickness. It just didn't happen. And they were all acknowledged for who they were. So there was no real mental illness or alienation. Everybody had their place in the tribe. Uh, And I don't think we need to go backwards into the way the Indigenous people did it in order to achieve that kind of mental wholeness again. But I do think that uh, creating a high-tech neo-tribal society is a very good template for a healthy society to emerge that could be technologically adept and, and creatively released and and, and in terms of consciousness, liberated. And how I see it in my imagination is this, instead of having governments and instead of having like an, a governing authority, if we just sent up a central system whereby things like roads, uh, you know, hospitals, medicine, uh, food, education was all taken care of by a functional organization, but not one that has power or power over other people, simply a functional system that if you had say a pod or a tribe of no more than 300 people because it's been noted that within 300 people you can make connect- or meaningful relationships with every person within that 300 beyond 300 you don't get to know some people and things become a little bit more but within 300 you can do that so if you had thousands hundreds of thousands millions of these pods of say 300 in which each pod is totally autonomous and makes the rules of for themselves of how they want to live. So there's no outside governing authority telling you how to live. Uh, each pod decides that for themselves. And each pod is responsible for all of the children. So, yes, a, a woman may have a child and the parents may have a, a special relationship to that child through blood, but they have no authority over that child in the sense that they need to take responsibility for them because all children are taken responsibility by the pod by the tribe just as they were in the old days, and that then the child would grow up with many healthy examples of the divine masculine or the divine feminine or you know and, and instead of just downloading the prejudices and ideas of two people much more uh, of a, many more role models to unfold in ways that are beneficial and meaningful to that child everything That you need for healthy growth is free absolutely free shelter housing medicine food no one pays for that that's you you have that just because you are alive you're a human being in other words you take money out of the equation you no longer have usury you no longer have debt you no longer even have it as a meaningful form of exchange what you have is what you create when you create Uh, a a society where all our basic needs are being met is a a self-actualized expression of the of a collective of humanity in other words instead of being stuck in the first three or four chakras which is about fight and flight sexuality procreation and power and survival and you know heart for those who you love and but not far beyond that um i'm what i'm proposing is that if all our basic needs are met, in other words, you're not going hungry, you're not starving, you're being fed, you're being uh, intellectually and emotionally nourished, you're being uh, supported to be creative, then what happens is you get a natural overflowing of abundance, what Abraham Maslow would call self actualization from the hierarchy of selves. So when all your natural needs are being met, you naturally overflow into creativity. You naturally overflow into questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is my best expression? How can I give of myself so that the world can be benefited by me? How can I leave the world a more beautiful place? What is my passion? What can I gift to the world? If we are able to think these thoughts and genuinely feel them with a joy and a passion, then could you imagine the world would be the most abundant, most beautiful, most incredible place? And, you know, um, and say, for example, each person could do I don't know, four or five hours a week of just working towards your food or labour or whatever, a great guy called Michael Tellinger has put forward a template like this where for a very few small hours a week, if everybody put that time in, five hours a week, all of the basic functional things of society are actually taken care of. And the rest of the time you can devote to creative self-expression and to, you know, giving and sharing love and to uh, pondering the deeper questions of our existence and I think that, that would be a very, very healthy way to live. Because um there would be no uh there would be no debt. And this has been a, a black magic spell that has been cast upon the on the human race is this idea of usury and debt, where money is just created out of nothing and then you're charged debt on that nothing, and then if you don't pay that debt will they, what is taken is your house or your belongings, which is something real, for something that wasn't real in the first place. This is just mind magic this is just like you know smoke and mirrors it's it does it it may have served the human race up until this point but it's past its use by date
0: now um before we reach our post-growth techno utopias uh we all fortunately all have to straddle between our ideologies while still making a living in the capitalist system uh this is something i've always been curious on and, and forgive me if i'm prime but when it comes to alternative healing and health, for example, the intensive hands-on approach to the work means that it can often be um, expensive and perhaps available to people with a certain amount of economic privilege um, with the means to uh, travel a lot of miles. Um, So I'm so interested to ask this question, I never have because I've never been um, brave enough. Um, How do people such as yourself balance balance changing the world with running um and and living with a business with full awareness that capitalism can have a corrupting influence on anyone and perhaps available to a certain subset of the population
1: well that's a very very uh interesting question because certainly it's a very timely it's one that's it's it's a kind of a dichotomy that we're all straddling at this point in our in our unfolding but um, look, as far as it goes with spirituality, there's often this misnomer that people go, "Oh, yeah, well, you can go and do a doctor and pay for a doctor's services, or you can go and buy a car and pay for that." But somehow, if you're doing something spiritual, that you shouldn't have to pay money for that. This is a misnomer. While we are living in a world of money, while we are in uh, a capitalist society, um, there's no point. Uh, railing against that or even wishing it wasn't there or even ignoring it we, we can't osho's answer to that was be in the marketplace but don't be of the marketplace in other words you have no choice but to interact with it interact with it of course openly honestly and with as much authenticity as you can but don't become the marketplace do not identify with it it's just an artifice which is there right now because there isn't there's there, there is no alternative and one needs to have interchange and exchange of energy between people. And although it is a very uh, poor symbol of exchange, whether we like it or not, we are in the world of money. And so money has to be accepted, just like all spiritual realities have to be accepted, without judgment. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that capitalism is in itself a corrupting force. I would say that it's more human beings that are corruptible and I wouldn't place the, the, the blame at the feet of capitalism or any ism really, communism or fascism. They are all flawed because human beings are flawed and they are all limited because they are coming from the minds of human beings as being some sort of system to guarantee some sort of equality when in fact the only true equality can come from authenticity and from a certain state of consciousness. In, in in upgrading our consciousness is the best insurance against corruption than any laws or policing or authority can ever hope to achieve because when you shift your consciousness there is an innate uh, understanding that follows that which which is a an, an innate uh, sense of what is right and what is wrong and, and you know what is uh, how to how to be in a situation and and as i said before to do no harm to anyone else and to support and love each other if you're coming from that place then uh, there is less of a possibility of these isms uh being corrupting you however being in the state of consciousness to the planet is still in largely Um, of course these things are going to happen. Of course corruption is a part of the human nature. And I don't think that it will ever necessarily disappear. It's just that it will become more and more refined as our consciousness becomes more and more refined. And we need new modalities, new ways of measuring who we are, new new ways of interaction. And I think that these are, are emerging in the interim because the way I see our reality, our consciousness, it's almost like we've been dialed into one radio channel And we've just started changing the dial and we're in the white noise. It's going, (laughs) we're still hearing a bit of the old channel. And now we're going into the white noise where we don't really know where we are. But soon we'll start to hear the intimations of the new channel coming in. and And not long after, we will be actually dialed into that channel. And there will be a new way of seeing, a new way of being, a new way of perceiving. And this is radical. This is going to change everything. Because we're not talking about the nuts and bolts here. We're not talking about the isms or the systems or the modalities. We're talking about who we are and where we're coming from. That is what will determine everything. And if we are shifting the way that we see ourselves, if I see myself as pure consciousness connected to all things, that I'm, uh, that I'm an eternal light of all that has been, is, and will be, then I'm going to be acting in a very different way than if I think I'm limited to this one body that one day I'm going to die and that'll be the end of it, and that I better look after my family and accumulate as much stuff as I can to shore up against any possible disaster, which is how most of the world is still thinking. So in our transition from one world to the next, from one channel to the next, it is a challenging thing because we don't know what is real and what is not real anymore. We don't know what to trust. But we still have the old ways, the old uh, systems like money and usury and debt, and we. there is also something new coming in, but that new has not yet fully manifested or crystallized. So it's kind of like an essential step of not knowing. And I think that that, that, that is the key for uh, navigating these very important times. Uh, And that is becoming comfortable with not knowing and being just authentic in the moment. I mean, money could stop tomorrow, mate. It's so so frail, the system at the moment. It's gone so far beyond out of its reach. Even Lord Jacob Rothschild was saying the Fed is so far out at sea that we don't know what's going to happen. It's out of our hands. So really... It is an uncertain period, but that uncertain period is contributing to the birthing of these new modalities which are not fully crystallised yet but are on their way as we come towards this new channel. So I believe that we are in flux, in process, and that we just have to do the best we can. It's like the old Hopi Indian metaphor of we find ourselves in a very fast-moving river at this time. Don't cling to the shore. Don't try and swim across the stream. Keep your head above the water and let yourself go with the current. Just trust. Trust. This is our only option, really beyond that. We're kidding ourselves. There is no security. At this point, we have to let go and trust nature and we have to work with whatever is available. And whatever is available may not be available tomorrow. We have to be comfortable with that too. There may come a time when there are food shortages. There may come a time when money collapses and we come back to a simple bartering system. I don't know. These are all possibilities. But I think that we should be prepared for anything by being comfortable, finding a comfortable and secure place in the space of not knowing, of letting go of the need to know and trusting existence and, and going with the flow and taking care, taking care of our beloveds. If everybody can take care of each and uh, ourselves around us and with us, then most people will be taken care of. Of course, many people are going to be screaming out in despair going, tell us what to do. Somebody do something. Give me the vaccine, whatever, you know. But this is also an expected response but more and more people are waking up to the fact that there is no answer. It's just the only answer is to, is to trust ourselves and to trust existence, that existence has done this many times before and that we, um, we uh, have to admit at this point um, that we are not in control. And <laughs> That's a big thing for most people.
0: Now, Dapan, I love the fact that with questions you go very deeply and uh, you take them into very unexpected charted waters as well. I, I, I love that about you. <laughs> um, so the last question, I am so curious um, about how you will answer this. I, I have no idea, actually. Um, the podcast is made Possible by Sustainable Population Australia, a charity that believes that population sustainability is a crucial component of a post-growth society. And this can be achieved by empowering women worldwide, providing access to affordable family planning services, and indeed by encouraging a movement worldwide towards smaller families. Now, I suppose this question in in the environmental sector, uh, I, I suppose it's mainly an answer. Uh, of ecological carrying capacity within spirituality, just to throw a duality. I know, I know, I do it. <laughs> um, there are different opinions around population, but you know, with further considerations about the aspect of human consciousness and perhaps even predeterminism, I feel that I have chosen, <laughs> uh, if if that's even possible to do, uh, not to pass on my genes um, with the idea that the planet needs more animals and less of me um and also you know for whatever reason i feel a bit fatigued in this 3d mortal coil and i just don't want you know another one of me to go through that as well Um, but you know i do ask all guests on their own unique perspectives on this
1: issue so what's yours Mm, yeah, well, very important point. I mean, let's face it, the world is overpopulated. There's no doubt about that. By every possible evaluation, that is the case. However, I do believe that the way we manage resources on the planet is a very, very inefficient uh, uh, extrapolation of what how it could be. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of people living in substandard conditions, in fact, a, a, you know, a very large proportion of the human, human collective. And uh, and these people live in dire circumstances. And, uh, and I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. And that in itself could certainly uh, inspire the idea that perhaps it's not very opportune to bring new children into the world at this time. However, I don't think it's a logical, rational consideration. I think that nature has its own way of redressing any imbalance. I remember when I was a kid, there was a plague of locusts. Sorry to... <laughs> to uh, kind of use the example as as if humans were a plague, but let's look at it fairly objectively and and use that word, Um, then nature would bring another element into it to redress that imbalance. And I think that at any time nature could shrug her shoulders and there could be a natural disaster uh, and that could take many, many people's lives. I think that nature is not unkind. However, it is ruthlessly just. Because nature knows uh, that there is no death, that we come here and we depart and that this is a place of becoming. When that huge tsunami happened and, you know, people were going, how could God let this happen? You know, 300,000 people dying in a tsunami and blah, blah, blah. Look, things are born and, uh, and, uh, and die every day. If you look at nature, it's just one big compost heap, recycling heap that things are being born and things are, being di- are dying Uh, in every moment, bringing children into the world now is a very, very individual thing. I totally resonate with where you're coming from when you say, oh, wow, I just can't see bringing another child in right now. And having said that, I've just had three friends give birth to the most beautiful children, really gorgeous kids. Like uh, you, you can feel these children, these babies are fully awake they're fully wired, like open, available, and and when I see the younger generation, even like my own child, who's you know my son, who's sixteen, is so awake and so open, and teaches me so many things. I think thank goodness for the younger generation. Now, like that gives me hope. I can see where they're going to bring this in, where in a certain sense, my generation and yours are creating the springboard or the foundation, the foundation for. That generation to take a springboard into the next reality, into the next paradigm. and i and I think nature has its own way, and it's often in the way of the next generations, because my generation totally changed the world of my parents' generation with the whole sexual revolution, the psychic revolution, the, you know the political revolutions that happened, and in ways that could have been completely unknown and unexpected just as this lockdown itself has been completely unknown and unexpected. You know, six months ago, nobody would have believed this could have happened, and yet it has. So we don't know what's going to come down the line, and we can't judge whether it's a good or a bad thing. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm generally an optimist, and I tend to believe that love and and the the forces of goodness ultimately will prevail but that the forces of darkness and limitation and contraction are there as teachers so i can't say because we don't know what's coming tomorrow we don't know what's happening in the next moment even really at this point from a socially responsible point of view I could say, yeah, we need to limit our population. I mean, in China, they tried to do it. I think they had, you were allowed to have 1.4 children or something, some ridiculous statistic like that for many years. And now what they've got is an ageing demographic and, you know, a lot of old people but no, not many young people to support those old people. Uh, so you, when you start tinkering and with the nuts and bolts of nature, as we've done so much in the, in this, in the West, we find that we are often uh, confronted with unexpected results that if, so that when you try and sort, solve one problem, you are inadvertently creating several more in the process. And I believe that if your choice is to is to go, okay, I'm not having a child at this time. It's too dangerous or insecure or actually I don't. I believe the world is overpopulated or whatever the reason is. I think it's a good choice. But I think that if your choice is to have a child and that your whole, whole meaning to life is to have a child and to nurture a new being into this realm that could possibly make a difference to the world and leave it a more beautiful place than when it came then i would say go with that too because who am i to second guess nature who am i to judge existence you know my mind is just a finite thing that is born and then one will one day die it is it is a piece of hardware that is not configured to um contemplate infinity or eternity or what's coming down the line It's a rational mind that can can configure a certain, you know, sequential analysis of something, but I might be wrong or I might be right. I don't know. My main motto in all of this is whenever I'm confronted with uh, questions or decisions in which, you know, it's really, uh, it's almost beyond the mind's ken to, to make it, I prefer to bow down to the mystery rather than solve the problem that appears to be. I bow down to the mystery and trust that nature knows what she's doing that existence knows what it's doing and that we are can only ever at best see a certain part of the picture and certainly from the point of where we are today when we look at that picture it looks limiting it looks like who would want to bring a child into this world i totally agree with you however i wouldn't be limited by that perception again of of aligning with your own truth, with your own authenticity, and that if you're doing that, you know you're going to be doing a good thing, whatever it is. And what is true for one person may not be true for another. That's why making a rule about it, like China did, is goes against human nature because some people are going to be disenfranchised from their true calling.
0: Well, th- thank you for that perspective, Dapan. Really appreciate it. Um, I-, I suppose I just... Um, would like this opportunity to reassure that from my experience a lot of family planning organizations have come a long way um since you know the china's one child policy and um you know i
1: understand family planning i really do i don't think that the one group of people should dictate to another at all i think that raising people's consciousness will naturally uh create a state of family planning most people will naturally go um, with the state of the planet, one child is good. Two, like my my parents both came from families of 10 children. That was normal in those days. Now, in the West, since the pill has been introduced, you know, back in the 60s in the sexual revolution, which suddenly you could have sex without getting pregnant, without the the risk of getting pregnant, suddenly, you know, birth rates dropped in the West. But in uh, third world countries, of course, they, they increased because in third world countries, you have the ethic that the more children you have, the better you'll be looked after in, in your old age. And actually it's, it's, it's like uh, having lots of sh- goods and chattels and possessions. Uh, the children were like seen as, as, as an asset. Now, this has got to change, obviously. Awareness, consciousness has to shift around that. And I think that the family planning is doing great work in that regard, shifting the awareness of, of why people have children and what motivates them to have children. But I think to dictate to people that you can't have children or are limited is 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 also not ideal so i think that what we need to do is raise awareness around uh world population and uh and in so doing people will become naturally uh, more responsible in these areas so i think it's always comes down to shifting consciousness always comes back to shifting awareness and uh you know giving credence to education as opposed to rules and regulations about how one should be or not be or act or not act or what one can do or not do you know we're growing up people are ready to take responsibility for their own decisions and their own sovereignty Uh, although we're still very much living in a world of mummy and daddy please tell us how to do it mummy and daddy being the priest or the politician or the, the governing body yeah uh, so I just want to say that, and I, do, and I do agree with a lot of that's being done uh, around the education and the, raising the awareness of, of the problem of, of overpopulation.
0: My takeaway message of this is shift the consciousness and not the goalposts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think if I had to give it an executive summary. So um, very quickly, where can people find out more about you uh, if they're so interested in finding out more?
1: Okay. Well, um I have a website darpen.com that's being revamped at the moment. It's not up yet, but we're working on it. So I invite everybody, you know, um to have a look at that. Uh, it'll be ready within the next few weeks. You can also find me on Instagram dar_pan369 or on um DAR, Uh, space pan on facebook so you're always welcome to come and be my friend there and i'm doing regular posts on those uh, forums and uh but yeah mostly through the social media platforms and my website i would say thanks michael
0: thank you so much it's been a
1: pleasure yeah and with you very very lovely to see you And, and thanks so much for the invitation i feel really honored thank you
0: You are listening to Post Growth Australia Podcast. Many thanks again to Darpan for some very deep and six-dimensional responses there. Thanks again to Belinda Wickens for leading us off with a very sultry and dreamy track, She Comes. I wanted to end with a few minutes of my own observations to pick up on some of the things I touched on in the interview, particularly regarding the current pandemic and how people are responding to it. Firstly, I'm finding myself increasingly moving away from the identity of being an activist or activism more broadly. I agree to an extent with Darpan that any ism tends to just replace the very thing it is trying to combat or topple. I kind of see it as a bit of a warning that anything that rhymes with schism is something that, you know, want to be avoiding or not to be feeding anymore. Language has a unique way of encoding its own shadows. Unfortunately, the realm of language is a necessary evil, which we all need to continue to dwell in for the time being. So with that in mind, I much prefer the term advocacy as it promotes the idea of calling in, of drawing attention to new ways of being and living that are positive and inclusive. We are not going to change a world with one set of values due to the fact that no one and no institution can possibly give us all the answers to a vastly complex world, a complex world that can't possibly be deciphered through the limitations of the human mind or through the modalities of language. We're certainly not going to change the world by yelling at each other. with the assumption that we're right and the other person is wrong. Uh, when did it ever work to us when someone yelled at us that we decided to change because they were so right? It doesn't work and yet it is a tool that um, a lot of us continue to keep trying to use on other people. Speaking of language, the price that we pay for the privilege of language is constant vigilance, vigilance to each other Vigilance to ourselves, even vigilance against our own vigilance. A constant tightrope act that can often be so very exhausting. Which is why it is so important to enter spaces outside of language so we can observe the world without labels, judgments, and comparisons. For me, the most effective way to do this is to go for a long bushwalk. Once in the trees, the earth and the bird calls, I often find myself with a perspective of the natural world I'm advocating for rather than dealing with the persons or isms on social media that I've been gnashing my teeth against the past week. And I have to say the bushwalk is a lot more constructive. Which brings me inevitably to COVID and particularly the Victorian state government response to this. Hey, we've all been talking about it, so uh, I may as well join the ball game. Now, some who identify with the spiritual movement have been particularly affronted by the restrictions in freedom and mask wearing. This is totally understandable. I mean, half the point of spirituality is uh, to envelop a state of expansion rather than contraction and everything we've been experiencing in um, our day-to-day lives has been an affront to that. This also demonstrates that all of us have an activist or advocate <laughs> inside us all and we all have a different threshold to pass, which we are compelled to act. My own opinion in regards to this is to try and take into account perspective of the past actions that we've been doing, particularly over the last 30 years in the globalised society, that have planted the seeds that have led us to the current predicaments that we find ourselves in for example the way we have collectively treated the other animals that we share the planet with through displacement by plowing down what remains of their wilderness homes through exploitation via factory farms and industrialized agriculture these have all led to conditions which antibiotic resistant bacteria and zoonotic diseases can flourish by being complicit to modern systems of organisation. This has placed many of us in large cities, displaced from self-organising communities and giving away these responsibilities to distant, centralised governments. Individuals are now removed from the collective when it comes to a responsible response to the pandemic. Governments, therefore, make these decisions on our behalf with their own equities biases shortcomings and opportunism without the capacity for communities to self-organize can we truly understand the balance between personal freedom and the need to keep others in the community safe it is worth the observation that during this time in which the community has been divided over the COVID response that the federal government unveiled a cybersecurity strategy which will grant the federal police authority to break into the computer networks of Australians domestically for the first time ever. This has slipped under the radar, uh, but threatens the long-term freedom of rights of both activists and advocates and those in the spirituality movement, more so than the current COVID response, in my opinion. When it comes to active engagement, it is more effective to be active when the mechanisms are more abstract and haven't yet impacted on our day-to-day lives. By the time that happens, it becomes a lot more difficult to unpack. Of course, it is impossible to go back to the past to enact a different outcome. That's madness. <laughs> the best thing we can do moving from this point onwards is to recognise a deeper underlying structural issues that have led to present circumstances and to somehow work together regardless of our differences of opinions to advocate for a better world in which we are powered to work with and not against the natural world and least of all each other moving forward let us go with collaboration and not with fear i guess that's my take-home message There is one more episode on spirituality I'm releasing concurrently to this. I'll be interviewing integration facilitator Jimmy Valeriel in addition to exploring the holistic activism movement in a little more detail. Until then, thank you all for going down the rabbit hole with me and if I haven't scared you off yet, I might see you next time.